Hello and welcome to the Thinking Aloud with Mao podcast. I'm your host, Mahmoud Al-Ansari, and you can call me Mao. Today, our special guest is Professor Dr. Sahar Aziz. She's an Egyptian-American law professor, one of the top in her field. And we discuss Muslim diaspora in the West and around the world. We discuss Islamic politics and politics within Islam and within modern Muslims around the world. How America has dealt with terrorism, the horrific acts of torture unheard of in the mainstream media targeted towards Muslims and done in the Middle East by American CIA agents. How 9-11 has impacted Western Muslims. Can democracy and Islam coincide or are they mutually exclusive? And just Muslim Americans in general. I hope you guys enjoy. Dr. Sahar Aziz, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Dr. Sahar, a professor of law and the founding director of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights at Rutgers University. Tell me a little bit more about that. What, What is that exactly? Yeah, the Center for Security, Race, and Rights is the first center, civil rights center at a U.S. law school that focuses primarily on Muslim uh, civil rights and human rights uh, as they affect Arabs, South Asians, and Muslims who come from various ethnic groups. And so we were created three years ago because of the systematic discrimination against these communities as a result of what we call post 9-11 discrimination. And so as opposed to it being a backlash where there was a national trauma after the September 11th terrorist attacks, we realized this was now part of the entrenched racial politics of the US and that Muslims were not going to be uh, forgotten within these circles of bigotry and prejudice. And in fact, they continue to be targeted. And the latest uh, evidence of that was when Trump issued the so-called Muslim ban. And so he legitimized uh, targeting Muslims and legitimized stereotyping Muslims as a national security threat even though by the time he issued that executive order, 17 years had passed since 9-11. What kind of work do you guys focus on mainly? Like what kind of work are you guys doing now? We do lecture series where we bring in uh, experts, lawyers, advocates, activists, professors who specialize on civil rights of minorities, religious freedom of minorities, on critical race theory, uh, who also focus on the Middle East. For example, we have Professor Asla Bali from UCLA Law who's coming on March 10th. And she's going to talk about race and empire with a focus on North Africa and particularly Libya in the post-Arab Spring context. We had Khaled Beydoun who came in January and he talked about Islamophobia in India and how that affects diasporic politics here in the US between Indians and Pakistanis, between South Asians and Arabs. Uh, We also have Professor Wendell Marsh, who's coming on April 5th, and he's going to talk about Islam in West Africa. So I encourage your listeners to go to our website, csrr.redgers.edu, sign up for our newsletter and sign up for the lectures. Everything is free, but it's, it's essentially a source of information that offsets the propaganda. The problem we have in America is that all the information, 90% of information about Muslims is publicly available to the general public is propaganda, misinformation, bigotry. It's not based on expert uh, analysis. It's not based on the complexities of um, the experiences of Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians in America or that region, the regions from which they come. So it's very simplistic and predictably produces 
prejudice. So we're trying to offset that by providing alternative platforms. The other thing we do is know your rights presentations, but we're trying to empower communities. Doesn't matter what communities they are. They can be white communities, they can be Christian communities, they can be minority communities, but we are doing a series of know your rights presentations so that people don't have their rights easily violated just from lack of information. So for example, education, what are your rights in education in schools against bullying, against discrimination, against mistreatment, your rights in housing, especially during COVID where you have many people who are being evicted uh, and they can't afford to pay the rent. What are your rights? Or the landlord is not taking care of the property, particularly with low-income people who end up living in substandard conditions. And in fact, oftentimes that's against the law and the landlord has an obligation to uh, fix those, the broken conditions in the, in the house. And then finally, uh, access to information, government accountability, how citizens can get information from the government, local, state, federal, when they're worried that there is government abuse or that they're not getting um, the services from the government that they think they should be getting. So how do you hold the government accountable? So those are the types of things we do. And then we've got a big research report coming out uh, in a few months that's going to show how anti-terrorism prosecutions and investigations are racialized. So if you think of January 6, 2021, siege on the Capitol, primarily white extremists, many of them who believe their right-wing political ideology is justified by Christianity, they were able to operate in plain sight, plan in plain sight, and no one stopped them. And yet, if a Muslim kid just posts a video of ISIS or Al-Qaeda, that then triggers a sting operation, an investigation by informants and undercover agents who often set him up to then uh, be prosecuted. And many times they prey on young men who have mental health illnesses or who may be um, facing some kind of personal crisis, but they're usually very vulnerable. And oftentimes they're just a bunch of blowhards. And so they, yeah, they post things that are offensive, but they're not dangerous. They're not planning anything until the informant and the undercover agent plans it and manipulates them. And so we're gonna have a, we have a big report that's going to show just how severe and grave this problem is and how the government's been wasting resources for the last 20 years, focusing on Muslims who, 99.9% per, .9 of them are not engaged in any kind of terrorism, while these right-wing white supremacists uh, and extremists are operating in the open and just growing. And outrightly too. What you're talking about is, is so interesting because I was, I was reading a statistic on it. I think it's around like 90 to 95%, even a little higher of these terrorist incidents for when it comes to Muslim Americans are actually uh, young Muslim men being lured in by an FBI agent and can, being convinced to do these things. And then it ends up being like a fake bomb and stuff like that. Is that what you're talking about? Yep, that's precisely it. So we found 572 cases uh, since 9-11 prosecutions against Muslims. And that's out of a total of about a little over 900 that have some terrorism related fact pattern, or according to the government does, and a vast majority of them, and we'll have the numbers out in a report, are what we think, what we call manufactured terrorism, government manufactured terrorism. So, and that then causes these communities to be afraid. It causes them to constantly try to prove their loyalty. It causes them to feel 
paranoid that there are always spies at their mosques, that there are always spies in their communities. So then they start censoring themselves and they don't feel that they can just exercise their freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of expression. So that has a, a major consequence in people feeling that they're not equal citizens, that they're not first class citizens like everybody else. So even though they may have the rights on paper, because of the government's targeting and their selective enforcement, they don't feel free. And we see this with black communities. We see this with Latinx communities. It's called racialized policing. And it creates a very different experience based on your race, especially as a collective, as a community. And I think anyone who cares about civil rights for all should be concerned that if the government is not enforcing the laws equally. I mean, we see this in drug laws, for example. The, the, it's very clear that whites and blacks use and possess drugs at the same levels. And yet, who gets prosecuted disproportionately more for possession? Blacks do. Why? Because the police over-police those communities and they act on these stereotypes that a black drug user is a criminal Whereas a white drug user is, has a public health problem, right? Is made a mistake, deserves a second chance, just a warning. And that's part of this dehumanization of non-whites and the treatment of whites as humans, as, as equal as first-class citizens. And so what people who work on civil rights do is they don't want to bring down white people. They don't want to oppress white people. They want non-white people to be treated in the same way, with the same humanity, with the same dignity, with the same equal rights. And if you look at the facts, especially in law enforcement and policing, that's just not the case. Do you think that the government still does that with Muslims today? Yes. At is, least it, is it worse? To, is it less? Well, we'll see what's going to happen after this 2020, what is January 6th event, because so for the last two or three years, actually at least three years, there has been warnings within law enforcement that right-wing extremism is rising. There have been warnings that the FBI has a blind spot and they're putting too much resources into trying to ferret out and find and create effectively terrorists, fake terrorists within uh, Muslim communities while ignoring this rise in the right wing and the militias and people who are armed and dangerous. And so that was being ignored by the policymakers and those in power. And as a result, we got you know, the riots and the, and the siege on the Capitol. So the question now is, will this alarm that just rang, right, where you had people looking for Pence wanting to kill him, people looking for Pelosi wanting to kill her, will that now wake up the FBI and the Department of Justice and Congress and the president to realize we should be focused on the real threat as opposed to working off of these stereotypes. But we still don't know because politically it's very popular. Uh, there's no cost to going after Muslims and there's a lot of benefit. Meaning that when you go, when a, the government issues a press release or has some kind of a, a, a press conference and says they caught a Muslim terrorist. Nobody asks any questions. It could be a fake plot. It could be where the government planned it from A to Z. It could be that the individual has a mental health illness. 
nobody has any questions. They assume it's true. The FBI agent and the prosecutor get promoted. They get an award. And so and there's no cost to them lying or exaggerating or abusing their authority because Muslim communities don't have a lot of political power uh, because many of them, uh, well, let me kind of step back a bit. So there's about, there's an estimated 5 million. Some people say it's as low as four. Some people say it's as high as seven, but let's say approximately 5 million Muslims in America. That's not very many compared to the amount of attention they get in the media. And we're talking about a country that's about 340 million. So less than 2%, a little over 1% of the population. Of those 5 million, 30% are African-American. And then the other 70% are immigrants, children of immigrants that immigrated or their parents immigrated after 1965. Because in 1965, the immigration laws changed to no longer give preference to, non, uh, to Northwest Europeans. Because between 1924 and 1964, the laws excluded Asians and Arabs would have to go to court and argue they weren't Asian. And that's why they wanted to be white. And that has a lot to do with why Middle Eastern and North African people are designated or categorized as white in the US census is because they didn't want to be Asian because technically the Middle East is West Asia, if you look geographically, because then they wouldn't be able to immigrate, they wouldn't be able to naturalize and become citizens, and they wouldn't have all of the rights that come with citizenship. Meanwhile, uh, because there was a huge wave of Jewish and Catholic immigrants from Italy and from Eastern Europe from 1890 to 1924, 10, almost 15 million, the white Protestant Northwest European heritage Americans uh, wanted to stop that because they saw that as a threat. They saw them as the other. And they changed the laws and set these very strict quotas. So that essentially from 1924 to 1965, vast majority of people who legally immigrated to the US were from Northwest Europe. And we're not from Asia, and we're not from the Middle East, and we're not from Africa. So that explains why the 70% of Muslims who come from all over the world, some of them are Indonesian, Malaysian, but a large number of them come from South Asia, about 30% from South Asia, um, and 30% from the Middle East and North Africa. They are new here. They came here for economic opportunity. Most of them, some of them are political refugees. They don't have political power. They don't have institutions and the NAACP and the ACLU and the Anti-Defamation League and you know, all of these different organizations and La Raza and um, you know, organizations that represent Latinos, that represent African-Americans, that represent LGBTQ communities they're still building those institutions. And so when September 11th happened, they were very vulnerable and, and there was no price to pay, no cost for government abuse. And so the government could pretty much get away with whatever civil and human rights violations they wanted to um, because the rest of society had been, didn't have any exposure to them. And so it was easy for them to believe that they were terrorists. It was easy for them to believe that they were dangerous. And as a result, if you read a lot of my work talks about all the different abuses that happened against these communities, if you go to something called Social Science Research Network, SSRN.com, and you search my name, you'll find all my articles, you can download them for free. And I go into a lot of detail in the different types of abuses in immigration, detention, and counterterrorism, in surveillance, um, 
in prosecutions, in can schools. You, can you give so, me an example of one of these? Well, for example, after 9-11, there were almost, I think it was around 3,000 people that were rounded up uh, that were from the Middle East, North Africa, or South Asia. And they were put in detention centers. Uh, it was under the auspices of immigration uh, enforcement. Some of them were in fact undocumented. Some of them were legally here, but they were being accused of suspected terrorism just because of their identity, because the government didn't know who had committed 9-11 and they were fishing and they cast a very wide net and your religious identity and your national origin is what um, triggered their suspicion. So, and many of them were treated, were abused uh, in these jails. Uh, a number of them, over a thousand, were ultimately deported because the government tried to find any reason they could to get rid of them because they couldn't find any terrorism, any terrorism activities because they weren't terrorists. Was the government placing them in prison without them being prosecuted, them actually having like uh, a legal uh, no, they would, they would arrest them. No, they, so many of them, because they were in fact immigrants in terms of they weren't citizens, they would claim that there was a suspicion that they were illegally in the country. And it was more of arrest now, ask questions later. And when you are in immigration enforcement proceedings, or if you're detained, you don't have a right to a lawyer because it's considered a civil suit, not a criminal suit. And because there was no pressure on the government to be careful in terms of these people's rights, they just felt they had license to arrest as many as they could. And then there were some people who were charged with terrorism and ultimately found after they were indicted or and arrested, uh, when they did get lawyers, it was determined that in fact, they, um, they were not guilty. They had that it was a mistake or that it was overzealous prosecution. The other issue that, the other events, set of events that happened is surveillance of mosques. So if you, if your readers want to go Google NYPD surveillance program, there was a program by the NYPD that lasted four to six years. And they effectively systematically spied on Muslim student organization, associations, mosques, uh, Muslim businesses like hookah bars and coffee shops where many Muslims would congregate. And they sent informants, they sent undercover agents all along the East Coast and they included universities. So Rutgers University, which is where I work, was their Muslim Student Association had people infiltrating it that worked for the NYPD. And ultimately they were discovered fortuitously, somebody found some of their surveillance equipment, one of the employees, I think at Rutgers and then reported it and then the New York Times got a hold of it and the entire operation was exposed but it had been going on for four to six years and the FBI knew about it right and the FBI was sending its own informants so and there's plenty of um there's a book called The Terror Factory by Trevor Aronson and that talks a lot about the, the various ways in which the government was setting up Muslims through these surveillance operations but the question now is how much of that is going to continue in light of this clear notice that white right-wing extremism is still is is a real problem um and i think it's up to muslims and i think it's up to people allies of muslims or people who just care about civil rights regardless who it benefits to hold the government accountable and say 
you cannot enforce the law based on stereotypes. And we're going to ask questions and you're going to have to prove to us that there really is a so-called Muslim terrorism problem. Because just because there's terrorism in the Middle East doesn't mean there's terrorism in America by people who happen to have an origin, a national origin from there. Okay? And that's part of the, the racism is yes, ISIS existed. But what does a Syrian American or an Iraqi American or an Egyptian American, especially one that was born and raised here, even one that immigrated here when they were an adult, why do you automatically assume that they support ISIS or they support Al-Qaeda or they support terrorism just because they come from those parts of the world or just because they're devout Muslims? I mean, it's, a, it's if we were to apply that to Irish Catholics or, or English Protestants or, or any other white Christian identity, we would realize that that's ridiculous. Right? No one's going around saying all white people are far-right extremists, all white Christians are members of the militia, even though the primary identity group for those groups is white and Christian, but we understand that it's that's collective punishment, right? That's suspicion by association, by identity association, and that's um, contradiction of American values and, and, and presumption of innocence. And this manufactured terrorism, as you called it, I, I believe a lot of people don't understand what you're talking about. I do. But can you give an example, like, like a short little story on, for example, how they would do these operations in the FBI? Well, so for example, you have a young kid who is on social media and usually 19, 20, 21, probably unemployed, uh, dropped out of college if even he went to college. And if he has work, he works at a minimum wage job but just tends to have a very uh, directionless life. And he's on social media and he's posting videos by ISIS and he's posting videos by Al Qaeda. And he's saying, there's saying some kind of bombastic bluster that they're great or they're defending the Muslim Ummah, but it's all just offensive speech. And the FBI has undercover agents whose job is to scour the internet and the social media to look for those. And they go and they contact him and they essentially egg him on and say, yeah, that's Muslims are all oppressed and we should defend Muslims and we should fight for Muslims. And essentially try to convince him or talk to him about, well, do you think we should join ISIS? ISIS are you interested? And try to lure him and tell him that, you know, you're not a good Muslim if you don't join them or you're not a good Muslim if you don't fight against America, the devil. and and use that propaganda to manipulate him and eventually convince him to either get on a plane to travel to join the organization at which point he gets arrested at the airport because it's all a sting operation and oftentimes <laughs> there's cases where the, the kid doesn't even have enough money to buy a fourth of a ticket so the fbi agent wire gives him the money to buy the ticket uh, he doesn't even have a hundred dollars uh, and he gives him a ride to the airport. And if the guy, sometimes the kid will try to back out and say, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this. And the FBI agent or informant will use you know, hyper toxic masculinity strategies of, oh, you're not a believer, you're weak. And it's psychological manipulation. And then convince him to keep going with the plot because he wants to have on his record if he's an undercover agent that he caught a terrorist, albeit a fake one. If it's an informant, they get paid, and they get paid sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And these informants tend to be people with felony convictions, people who are unemployed, 
uh, people were very dubious and this is a paycheck for them. So they're, they can be very aggressive in trying to, again, persuade someone who, yes, that person may be sympathetic in terms of, of ISIS or Al-Qaeda in terms of how, by posting propaganda, which again is not illegal, it's offensive, but it's not illegal. But they, there was no indication that they were gonna do more than that. And so the government could have yeah, kept an eye out on their social media but to literally take him and, and lead him into a fake plot, I think is overreach right? and government abuse. There's this Netflix series that came out like maybe three, four months ago. I don't know if you've watched it, but it's, it's called, I think, The, the Push. And it's a psychologist uh, or a psychiatrist. I'm not sure which one. But he basically learn, he, he invites this person in, makes this whole arena, makes it beautiful and sets it up. And he just psychologically manipulates this person the entire day to see whether he would be able to convince this person to push someone off a building at the top, right? So he does this to five people, just psychologically manipulates them the entire day. And at the end, four out of five people, which were a diverse group of people, it wasn't just like white, black, it was just diverse all around. Uh, four out of five of them pushed that person off the ledge. And so that's crazy. So imagine if an FBI agent who's trained in this psychologically manipulates you to do something like that. That's insane. Right. And if it was a white person that they were doing that to, what would happen is journalists and lawyers and politicians and community leaders would catch on and they would then pressure the FBI and embarrass the FBI and uh, maybe even change laws so that they would stop doing that. But when you're a member of a vulnerable racial minority or religious minority, nobody cares, nobody pays attention so they can get away with it because there's no accountability. There's no uh, monitoring by society. And so it's all the more reason why we have to make sure that our laws are enforced equally. Uh, and again, that's why I started the Center for Security, Race and Rights is so we could do that kind of work to bring that information forward so that um, the government couldn't continue to manipulate the people, because that's essentially what they're doing. And they're, they're wasting resources. It's, there's two harms. One is the individual harm to the people, their civil rights or civil liberties, and, and to Muslims directly. But the bigger harm is the waste of resources, which then is, could be used for either better, more smarter law enforcement, or used for social services, right? We're a society that spends, we're willing to spend thousands of dollars on prisoners per year per person, but we don't want to spend a few hundred on people in schools or in healthcare or in mental health treatment. So we have we don't have our priorities straight. And as a result, we continue to have a society that is highly um, securitized. The FBI about a month or two ago finally said that the biggest domestic threat to the United States is white supremacy. Do you think that's a front or do you think they actually finally learned their lesson? No, I think they learned their lesson because again, when, when the target of the political violence, the terrorism is the white male elite, then they, then they get scared, then they pay attention. If the targets are poor people or minority people or immigrants, they don't really care. So because the targets were the 
elite, in particular the white male elite, but also other congressional elected officials who weren't necessarily white male, but they went straight for the center of power. So now they are, they want retaliation, they want to punish them. But we just don't know if this will last for a year or, and they'll see it as a systemic problem or if they'll just prosecute these individuals and we're already seeing that they're prosecuting them for very minor crimes and misdemeanors. So even that is showing the disparate treatment in favor of whites. If those had been black people who did that, all of them would probably be facing life in prison. And yeah, they'd probably be dead in the first place. Yeah. They'd probably be dead in the first place, let alone to face prosecution. That's true. They probably would have gotten shot. Yes. That so was that yeah. No, go ahead. That was what really, out of everything I've ever seen in the in the United States, that shouted white white privilege right there. And I've always been iffy, like I don't really understand because I've never really experienced white privilege myself. Uh, so I was always like, I only heard about it, and that right there, I was like, wow! If you just made that crowd black, this would be a completely different scenario. So that screamed white privilege to me for sure. Well, and then and you know you're privileged. I mean, you're privileged in your own ways, we're all privileged. Everybody has some privileges, some more than others, some less than others. But the way that you can identify the privilege you have is to really ask yourself in a particular scenario when you've done something wrong or you've made a mistake, uh, would somebody without that privilege be treated the same way you were? And if they're treated worse than you, you have a privilege. If they're treated better than you, you don't have the privilege and they do. You, know, you can use school as an example. If a, if a teenage, you know, high school kid commits a you know, assault or mouths off to a teacher or cheats on an exam, if the school treats that person, that kid, uh, better than another kid who did pretty much the same thing, then you've got privilege there. And then you have to ask yourself: Is it because of his race? Is it because of his class? his family connections or his wealth, um, why aren't they treating them the same? But when people get second chances, when they get light punishments, when they get uh, infringements overlooked and they're not held accountable to violating rules or laws, that's privilege. When they're assumed to be competent, assumed to be smart, assumed to be qualified, that's privilege. Whereas if you're not, that's the lack of privilege. And I think that's what people need to step in. But you have to be very thoughtful and intentional about thinking and asking yourself that because if you have a privilege, it's usually invisible to you. It's normal to you. But if you don't have the privilege, it stands out. So if you're, if when you speed and a cop stops you for speeding and you speed it and they're very respectful to you and they're very polite and they well, look at your license, talk to you with respect, give you a ticket and say goodbye, thank you very much. That's a privilege. You don't think it, you don't realize the privilege because you're used to that. But if you're the black person who every time a cop stops you, they speak to you disrespectfully, maybe they even search your car, maybe they force you to step out and embarrass you in front of everyone by having, frisking you in public, maybe even putting you in handcuffs, maybe even arresting you and all that was because you were speeding, you don't have that privilege. Right? And that's yeah. where, that's how you want to, that's how to look at it, the frames to look at, um, to figure out what, you know, when do you have privileges and when you, when you don't have privileges. Absolutely. And do you think, so a lot of my, a lot of my friends who are at least non-Muslim, uh, 
uh, look at me and they're like, nah, man, there's no way that, you know, people stay ha- still hate Muslims. It's 2021. It's over. It's been 20 years or so and so on. And I'm like, nah, dude, it, it's still it's still around. A lot of people dislike Muslims in the United States and I'd say around the world. A lot of non-Muslims in general dislike Muslims. Do you think that the hate for Muslims and Islam in the West is rising or do you think it's decreasing? So it depends on what you're measuring and where you're measuring. So first you have to distinguish between explicit and implicit bias. And explicit bias is certainly easier to identify. And also different communities within a country hold different biases towards the same people or same group. So for example, you might have a lot less explicit bias in the Northeast, in, in Detroit, in Chicago, in Houston, you know, places where you have large numbers of Muslims, such that people are accustomed to going to school with them, working with them. And if they see something negative on television, they have a counterpoint in their own life. And, or they're just accustomed to diversity. And they're not as easily manipulated into thinking just because someone's non-white that they're bad. And if somebody commits a crime, whether it's a terrorism crime or a non-terrorism crime, and you see their picture and you see that they're from a certain identity group, you're, you have the critical thinking skills to know that that's just that one person. That doesn't mean that everybody who shares their identity is automatically suspicious in some way. But when you start getting to middle America or rural America, where you have both a lack of, in, in, lack of interaction with Muslims, a lack of interaction with minorities, Uh, and a a prevalence of right-wing radio shows and television that spews hate and it spews white supremacy, even if it doesn't say white supremacy. But effectively what they do is they they have stories that uh, vilify minorities and praise whites. And so then those people are going to be much easier to manipulate and they will hold explicit bias. And then the implicit biases are really tricky, right? That's where you're getting into um, that that disparate treatment, right? Or when you're getting into groups, people that are otherwise the same, but they're not getting the benefit of the doubt. So for example, in the workplace, it's the easiest example is to probably use gender, um, but you have many situations in workplaces where you have women who are strong leaders, who are really smart, ambitious, very confident, and they get dinged for that. Right? They are thought of as pushy and bossy and bitchy, yet there's a man who has the same personality characteristics and he's praised and he's given a raise and a promotion and he's seen as a leader. Those are implicit biases. It's not that the people are saying, oh, it's because she's a woman that I don't think she's competent, but it's so deeply ingrained in their psyche of what a proper woman or how a woman should behave and how a man should behave that it actually affects that woman's ability to succeed in the workplace. And that's one of the reasons why we have women being paid 80 cents on the dollar for every similarly situated man across almost every industry. And so all my law students, I tell them, congratulations, ladies, you got an A and the person sitting next to you, he got an A and you're gonna get $80,000 and he's gonna get $100,000 for the same job, for the same grades, for the same degree. Are you, are you like very familiar with that situation when it comes to women getting paid less? Because I'm, I'm deeply interested in that topic. 
you should research it. It's not a secret. And everybody's scratching their heads trying to figure out why this happens, but it's happening because of implicit bias and because companies keep salaries secret. And so effectively supervisors are making choices, are making offers and promotions that are keeping that permanent. And they justified in their mind, they're not doing it intentionally saying, I'm going to purposely give my male employees 20% more money. But it's so deeply ingrained in their psychology, such that men are getting the privilege of presumed competent, the privilege of presumed to be a leader and a manager and promotion material. Whereas women are presumed to not be serious about their jobs, especially if they have kids. Well, they're, you know, they're not committed. Uh, and if they're too committed, then they're aggressive and they're pushy and they're overbearing. And so it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And all of that is based on gender stereotypes. And that's so, where you're getting into implicit bias. Right. And, I, and I've heard people uh, refute your, your statements by saying things like it's, it's not strictly based off of gender, but there's things that have to do with um, uh, I, I think it was being agreeable versus non-agreeable personality traits. Uh, how much one smiles versus not like a lot to do with actual inter uh, intercommunication personality traits, as opposed to gender, even though gender may play a role. What would you say to that? No, well, first, you know, any kind of discussion like that has to look at empirical data. And that's where the social psychologists who come into play and people who do studies. Uh, and but based on what I've read, um, the problem there is that the same traits are interpreted differently based on the gender of the person exercising those traits. So a woman who's agreeable and pleasant might be seen as weak. She might be seen as not so smart, right? Similarly, if they want someone who's hard charging and smart and makes executive choices and is confident, that might be seen as a negative trait for a woman and a positive trait for a man. So it, it's a, and, it tends to be, there tends to be a double standard. So if it's the, it's these excuses that are made, well, she's not that agreeable. And yet the guy who works with her is not that agreeable either. But nobody thinks that has anything to do with his competency. Well, you know, I, I've actually read social, I've read social psychology um, papers that say that actually being agreeable is worse in the workforce. For example, that the same reason that a woman or women in America uh, get less tickets or get uh, arrested less is the same reason uh, they get promoted less. It's because they're too nice, they're too agreeable, they're too kind and not pushy enough. Is that? Well, that that's part of the gender stereotypes. And you're correct. There are some scenarios where those, by playing or pandering to those gender stereotypes, you get a benefit, like police officers not being socialized to see women as threats, as security threats. So they're going to be less likely, except when it comes to Black women. Because black women are treated not the same as white women, and they are subjected to aggression and suspicion by police officers. They haven't gotten enough attention, I think, the types of violence and disrespect against black women as, as recently we've started to talk more about with black men. Uh, and there's a whole movement called Say Her Name. It's a hashtag, and there's a website, and people want to know more about it, about how black women have been, have suffered from racialized policing. Should, should check that out, Say Her Name. But, but my point is, it's when you have these double standards, that's when you're getting into implicit bias. So with Muslims, you just have to ask yourself, okay, if we had a Muslim that was, a, was going to be appointed to the Department of Justice as the Attorney General, would people be questioning 
his loyalty? Would they be worried whether they said it or didn't say it? Or would it be purely looking at his credentials? So once they go into political power, positions of power, it's different if that's the person who's serving you in McDonald's because that person doesn't have power and so you don't feel threatened. In fact, it actually reinforces the stereotype that you have that they are lower than, right? That they are at the entry level of society as opposed to they are someone who has more power over you. Um, but you can't, you have to test that hypothesis. You have to test it. But what we have seen is that hate crimes do go up uh, have continued to go up. And what we are seeing is school bullying is a, is a serious problem among Muslim kids. And that's usually a red flag because these are young kids and so they're being influenced by their parents. And we are seeing, we do see a lot of that. There isn't enough research on it. Um, that's one problem. We don't have enough research on Muslims, empirical research, so that we can really get a full picture of the extent to which they're experiencing discrimination. But just keep in mind, it's very geographically focused. It's very context specific. Um, the more minorities you have in a particular community, the less likely a Muslim is gonna stick out as an other and the less light and white people are gonna be accustomed to being around diversity. But once you start going into middle America where they're accustomed to being the majority, they're accustomed to being in power, to being the lawyers, the judges, the professors, and so when Muslims start coming in or any other minority, they start to feel racial anxiety and, and they feel threatened. Um, so it's, it's, it's not, it's complicated, but I think the trend, we have yet to see a downward trend. That, that's pretty clear. I mean, we wanna see a downward trend, we certainly do, but we haven't yet seen a downward trend. And the Muslim ban added fuel to anti-Muslim racism because it was the president of the United States telling Americans, that it is legitimate and it is okay. And as far as he was concerned, it's legal to try to keep as many Muslims out of the country because they are should be presumed to be disloyal. They should be presumed to be suspect. And that just is another, yeah, it verifies the stereotypes. And people act on those stereotypes. You said as far as he's concerned, the Supreme Court after like the third or fourth time, I'm not even sure how many times and went back the Muslim ban to it. But after several times, it finally passed. What, what made the Supreme Court pass that? How was that in any way legal? Well, so the, the president has what we call plenary authority in immigration, meaning he has full discretion. Uh, in contrast to say Congress having its maximum power when uh, setting the budget or when taxing. So he can keep people out of the country you just can't do it based on unlawful bases. So what happened is his first ban included people with green cards, included student visas, work visas, visitor visas, it included everybody except US citizens. And that, and when it went to court, the court said, no, you are, you cannot, they have rights to, they have due process rights. And you can't just keep someone who, for example, went to Yemen to visit family, who has a green card, who's lived here for 15, 20 years, has a house, has a job, and say, now you can't come back in the country, simply because you're from Yemen. Right? And just because I have the right to control immigration. And so the Supreme Court said, no, they have due process rights. And at the very least, you have to let them in. And then you have to go through the court system to determine that that particular individual is a national security threat, which of course they're not gonna do because they're not a national security threat. So the, eventually the, it kept 
narrowing and narrowing to only people, for example, who uh, got approved for a visitor visa. And so that got rejected. Right? People who had gotten approved for student visas, but hadn't yet come. Um, there were still some students who were caught abroad because the student visa situation was, was a little iffy. Um, similarly, if you had a work visa and you've been working here, you could come in. And it depended on the country. Some countries, for example, with Iran, ironically, they did continue to allow the student visas to come in after the Supreme Court uh, here ruling and, and Trump let students from Iran come in, but he wouldn't let students from other countries come in. So ultimately, it was people who were non-immigrants, because if you have a green card, you're considered an immigrant. If you have a work visa or a uh, student visa or a business visa or a, a visitor visa, you're considered a non-immigrant. You have a visa, but it's a non-immigrant visa. You're not, that visa is not for you to here to stay for a long period of time, right? Um, so those were the individuals who ultimately this, the court said, yes, he has the legal authority to exclude them and then the court turned a blind eye and this is where the court got criticized by people like me and others, other legal scholars, where they turned a blind eye to the fact that this was based on them being Muslim. And they said, no, 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 uh, he, it's not necessarily based on them being Muslim because look, it didn't apply to Saudi Arabia, it didn't apply to Egypt, it didn't apply you know, to Morocco. And so this really was the executive exercising their their own expertise in, in national security, and we have to defer to them. We have to let the, the executive branch make those decisions. Why do you think he left Saudi Arabia and Egypt off of it? I was just about to ask you about that. That's, that's an interesting point, especially that I would say that, and I don't want to say that, like, I don't want to specifically say Saudi Arabia, but um, from the 9-11, if, if Trump is really saying we're trying to keep out uh, these terrorists, well, actually all the 9-11 terrorists, most of them, not all, a lot of them were Saudi Arabians. So uh, why did he keep Saudi Arabia and Egypt off of the, the list? Because they're allies, because all of this is really about geopolitics and international relations. So the only reason he passed the Muslim ban was it was red meat for his very far right extremist base. The Stephen Bannons, the Stephen Millers, um, the Rush Limbaugh's, that whole crowd, right? Breitbart, Newsmax, they are his base and they're very racist. <laughs> they're racist against Muslims, they're racist against Blacks, uh, they're, they, and they're not ashamed of that. And so they had been demanding, remember he ran on an anti-Muslim platform, on an Islamophobic platform. That's how he railed, that was the scapegoat that he kept beating while he was running in 2015 and 2016. And if you look at the Bridge Initiative, which is in uh, Georgetown, uh, it's a nonprofit that was keeping track of the data and that their hate crimes were rising at a troubling rate in 2015, because if you go back and look at all of his speeches and Ted Cruz's speeches and many of the Republican candidates before Trump was selected as the Republican nominee, but even after he kept doing it, but they were competing with who was the most anti-Muslim and who was gonna be the toughest on national security. And they didn't hide that what they meant was who was going to keep out as many Muslims, prosecute as many Muslims. Uh, and we were the scapegoats and that created a huge uptick in discrimination. So again, we're talking 2015, 2016, and he had made these promises to them. And so if you, I have an article called a Muslim registry colon, the precursor to internment question mark. And in that article, and that's on my SSRN.com page, 
uh, I go through all of his statements and how all the promises he made to his base, Trump, in saying, I'm going to put a special registration database together. I'm going to keep them out. I'm going to deport them. I'm going to deny them citizenship. So it wasn't a coincidence that that executive order, the Muslim ban, came out seven days, or it was 10 days, I think, right after he was inaugurated because Stephen Bannon was still his advisor, and Stephen Bannon is the head of Breitbart, very far right, and he effectively penned it and said, here you go, sign it. We got to keep our promise. But, so, so that was really domestic politics, trying to feed the racists and give them the red meat they wanted and rile them up into their racist frenzy. But at the same time, he needs to have good relations with Saudi Arabia because America sells billions of dollars in military equipment to the Saudis and that money is what feeds our defense industry, right? So he wasn't, if he put them on the list, then he could have lost that business. Similarly with Egypt, uh, Egypt is a neighbor of Israel. Israel is a strong ally of the United States. There's a peace agreement and they do not want to have a bad relationship with Egypt because they want relations between Egypt and Israel to stay strong. And also Egypt helps America in its war on terror. And it, um, it helped it in doing its dirty business during the war on terror where they had extra rendition, where the American CIA would go kidnap people and then send them to black sites, including in Egypt uh, and in Saudi Arabia, where they would then outsource torturing so that CIA agents couldn't be prosecuted for torture because there were laws on the books. Wait, can you, can you go a little further in that one? What, what's that about? I've never heard of this. So there's something called uh, extraordinary rendition. And, and black sites. If you Google that, you'll find it. And so right after 9-11, when they were still looking for who committed 9-11, what are the terrorists? They were trying to find Osama bin Laden and all of the, the organizers, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. The CIA was um, engaging in pretty blatant human rights violations by kidnapping people that they were convinced were members of Al-Qaeda and convinced were had something to do with 9-11. But kidnapping they US citizens or? No, 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 abroad, in abroad. Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, sometimes in Europe. And they wanted to get information out of them and they wanted to torture them to get that information out of them. But there are laws in the US that you can actually sue and prosecute CIA agents if they commit torture. Um, so they would outsource it to Egyptian, Jordanian, Saudi Arabian intelligence services who had no problem torturing because that's what they do on a regular basis to their own people. And so they, they needed the cooperation of these regimes. That, that's kind of the long and short of it is that racism will, is, it will flourish until it hits up against another interest. And these geopolitical interests where you have billions of dollars at stake are going to supersede feeding red meat to the base. And so he didn't really need to include every Muslim country. Most of them weren't even sophisticated enough to know that, for example, the people who committed 9-11 happened to be Saudi citizens, which doesn't make Saudi Arabia or the Saudi citizenship guilty of terrorism. Because again, you can have 10 Americans commit a terrorist act, that doesn't mean all Americans are terrorists. But still, even though you would think that, well, maybe he would be uh, seeking to punish Saudi Arabia for example, for not being aggressive enough in routing out terrorism within its own borders. No, it was just, it was, it was political uh, posturing and political theory theater at the expense 
of American Muslim civil rights. And a lot of academic people who dislike Muslims or dislike Islam more specifically than than Muslims uh, use the term Islamist a lot. And I don't really know what that means. Like, I, I don't hear it other than from these people that don't like Muslims, don't like Islam, and view it as a threat to democracy. What is an Islamist? Yeah. I, don't, I don't think there's such thing as an Islamist, but I do think, I do use the term political Islamist, and I think there's also something called a political Christianist. Uh, and effectively, the way I define a political Islamist or a political Christianist is someone who is politically engaged and their political engagement is shaped and defined by their religious beliefs. And as a result, their vision of a good society is defined in large part by their theological commitments. So that can include things if you're, if you're thinking about Israel, so you have political Jews as well, uh, where they may say everything should, should, should be shut down on the Sabbath, on Saturday, because that's what God said, and that's and we should follow God so that we will be blessed as a nation and that we will live a good life and we should obey our religion. So it could be here where you would close down the businesses on Sunday. Right? So religious Christians who practice and observe the Sabbath don't work right, on the Sabbath. It's only for leisure and relaxation. Same thing for Muslims, as they say, although with Islam, actually, there doesn't seem to be the, it's more about you don't go to work, but we don't have in Islam the same concept that all businesses should be shut down and the entire society should shut down. It's more, you shouldn't work. You go to pray Friday prayer and you relax, but businesses can still be open. But maybe for Muslims, it would be something along the lines of, you know, everybody has to, all men are required to go pray on Friday, and if you don't, the state could punish you because it's mandatory, as opposed to what's currently the situation where if you don't pray on Friday as a man, you're not going to go to jail, right? Maybe you'll be publicly shamed by your family or you'll be pressured or they'll say you should go, but you're not forced to go. But if you're somebody who believes that the religion and the religious tenets should define the law and should define public policy, that's one version of a political Islamist or a political Christianist or a political Jewist, for lack of a better word. So it exists in, or a political Hinduist, right? And the reason why that's pejoratively used, political Islamist, is because the Western um, elite and the Western intelligentsia are, have two strong ideological uh, influences. So the first is the secular liberal tradition which has a strong aversion to religion being any part of public life or public policy or government. And that's not unique to Muslim, to Islam. That's towards Christianity, towards Judaism. And the second is they're very suspicious of Islam. They're very suspicious of political Islamists in particular. So that's a very unique bias that they have where they might be not as suspicious of Jews in Israel who are on the far right. And they do exist and they have political parties who are actually fighting politically, not physically, but who are having major political disputes with secular liberal Israelis, Jewish Israelis, about how much Judaism as a faith should influence government and law and public policy. And yet nobody in America is saying, oh, they're really bad people because they want their religion to define their society. They might just say, well, we don't agree with that. 
but with political Islamists, and that's part of Islamophobia. That's part of this disparate treatment, treating them different than some other groups that are in the same situation. That if you're a political Islamist, well, you must be Al-Qaeda or ISIS. So Al-Qaeda or ISIS are a very, very extreme version of political Islamists insofar as they have a political agenda, which is to create this delusional caliphate, <laughs> go back 1500 years, which you know, majority of Muslims don't want. <laughs> it's a minority perspective. And they do it through violence. They want to implement it through violence, through insurgency, through resistance. Um, whereas there's nonviolent political Islamists who will just say, no, it's, we're, we don't want to have a war. We don't want to go through violence. We don't even want to caliphate per se, but we do think that we need to have more morality in our society, more morality in law. Uh, that, and then that can affect how people behave. So whether it's banning smoking or criminalizing using drugs, I mean, why do we? Why is marijuana criminalized? It has a lot to do with Christian faith, with religion. I mean, why? Why is prostitution criminalized in America? Because prostitution is considered a sin in Christian religion. But there's really no other basis. Why do you? Why do you criminalize prostitution and not criminalize? Drinking alcohol, which can be just as harmful, and there's all kinds of drunk driving. Well, drunk driving is criminalized, but the drinking or getting drunk is not a crime, and yet it's so harmful, right? So when we ask ourselves, what is it that? What's the basis for our laws and our public policies and the way we structure society? A political Islamist, a Christianist, Christian, political Christianist, and a political Judaist or, or Jewist would say the religion. You can disagree with that. I disagree with it because there's very real repercussions for women. Because if you take a very traditional interpretation of Christianity, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, and most other religions, they tend not to, they tend to perpetuate patriarchy. Right? And so women end up getting short shafted. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't support that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I would criminalize them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I would automatically put them in the same category as Al-Qaeda. And ISIS. Yeah, that, that, that's an unfair thing. And, and the, these same academics, these same people uh, would argue, just like you actually mentioned a little bit there, uh, that democracy can't coincide with, with uh, Islam. That if you have a, a majority Muslim uh, narrative occurring in the United States, for example, then that narrative will start being anti-democracy. Well, just like you said earlier, a lot of Muslims, especially in the Middle East, are very pro-democracy and not pro-caliphate, not pro this, you know, being under one ruler theocracy kind of situation. So, so what, what would you say to them? Is, is Islam and, and dem democracy mutually exclusive as a Muslim law professor living think, in a democratic country? You have to ask yourself first, what do you mean by democracy? There's populist democracy, there's representative democracy, there's different types of democracy. But let's say, generally speaking, democracy is self-governance, right? some form of self-governance where the people can determine and can have some say in different ways, different degrees, as to how they're governed. Um, and there, there is no rule or is, there's no religious rule in Islam that bars that. However, in every single religion, there is a privileging of religious authorities. And if you are going to have a theocracy, 
whether it's an Islamic theocracy, a Hindu theocracy, a Jewish theocracy, or a Christian theocracy, you are by definition giving most of the political power to religious leaders, whether it's the imams, the sheikhs, the bishops, the pastors, the, the preachers, the, the priests, the rabbi, because they're the religious experts who will then tell you, here is how society should be structured. And then from there, you have to ask yourself, okay, can anybody be in those positions? Are there, what are the exclusions to those positions? And what if we want um, people who don't, aren't necessarily religious leaders who also, and they're selected by the people. I mean, it's another issue is do the people select the religious leaders the same way they select ele elected officials. And so therefore it's a democracy, but instead of electing a civilian who runs for elected office, you, you vote for the rabbi, you vote for which imam you want, right, to lead you. Uh, but as long as, so, but, but that's the definition of democracy. That's like the fundamental core is self-governance and having a say in how your society is structured. And the more hierarchical it is, the more exclusivist it is, the harder it is to do that. But what we have to understand is we don't, <laughs> we have a lot of anti-democratic practices in the United States. For example, our laws nearly guarantee that only wealthy people can become elected officials. That's not very democratic. There's nothing in the law that says you can't be elected if you're poor, but the finance, the campaign finance laws make it impossible, practically impossible for poor people to be elected because they don't have the money to campaign. And yet rich people can spend as much as they want. So when they had Citizens United, the Supreme Court case that said corporations are people too, and they can donate and you can create PACs, and then those PACs support the candidates indirectly, but they do it through media campaigns, well, then you're guaranteeing wealthy people. Nobody's going around saying, well, that's not very democratic. Well, some people are, the progressives, but you, you take that for granted. Similarly, why don't we have an equal representation of women? What why do you don't mean we have by that? Representation of minorities. All of these are due to social trends that produce anti-democratic outcomes. And so I don't think it's, I don't think the right question is whether Islam is compatible with democracy. It's because that democracy is more of a sociological question and religion is just one of the components that fits into a particular society's uh, ecosystem. And you have many Muslim majority countries that are anti-democratic, that are dictatorships, that are monarchies, and they're not theocracies. And religion is not what is setting the laws and the rules. And they're not, de they're not democratic. And yet you also have Turkey is an example where Erdogan, he is the Islamist country, right? He, he's the Islamist party. But the way that the, there's other structures in place that make sure that just because he happens to be a political Islamist in his party, that doesn't mean that then he can just completely eliminate all the opposition, right? So it's all about the systems. Can you debate things? Do you have an open press? Do you um, have an independent judiciary? Do you have education that teaches people critical thinking rather than feeding them propaganda and misinformation? So there's just so many factors that produce a democratic environment. And it's a cop-out and it's intellectually lazy to say, oh, it's just a religion. It's way more complicated than that. Hmm. Okay. I didn't even, that, that was a completely different angle that I thought you would go with it because it, it, I, I think one of the things that they struggle with, at, at least what I hear from them online 
is that they because Islam is more than a religion, right? Like Islam is kind of like um, a philosophy. It's it also uh, lends its hand in politics. You know, it's it's a religion. No, it's a religion, but a religion that digs its that digs into politics, that digs into psychology, that digs into philosophy. It digs into multiple disciplines. I think that's part of the narrative that Muslim Americans are fed to try to glorify their heritage. No, Islam is a religion, and Muslim majority countries are so different along in terms of philosophy and politics and sociology, but. I don't think that there were people who were Muslim who were philosophers, and there are people who are Muslims who were scientists, but they were Muslim. They were, about, Muslim. they were using the, they, just because someone is a Christian and an avowed Christian, and they come up with certain uh, a philosophy, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it belongs to Christianity per se, right? right. Then you're in the world of theology. How about, for example, uh, they, they would argue that Jesus, peace be upon him, was strictly a religious figure, while the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a was a political, um, uh, religious, philosophical, you know, ju just a multiple-headed uh, dragon of, of a human being when it came to the things that he did. And that's what causes Islam to be more than just uh, a religion, at least in what it focuses on. Well, so the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a prophet first and foremost, right? He, had, he got the revelation uh, for that ultimately became what is now the Quran. And he was a statesman insofar as part of his divine mission, right? Part of his prophetic mandate was to expand the faith, right? And to um, proselytize and to expand the influence and followers within Islam. But I don't think that's any different than Christians. Uh, I think Jewish, the Jewish faith might be the only exception because they don't believe in proselytization and because of the concept of the chosen people, which is theologically based for them. But most other religions, if you look at Christianity, uh, it, Christianity and empire were interlinked, right? And religious leaders were also uh, considered political leaders at different points in history. And so I think it's it's a bit anachronistic to look back 1500 years when at that time, um, in order to be a political leader and in order to be a religious leader didn't necessarily, it wasn't mutually exclusive, right? It was the same thing basically. Yes, but then Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman and Ali, they weren't, they weren't prophets and they were political leaders, but they were also considered kind of good Muslims. And so I don't think that that, I think what the part of the problem is that we in the West, especially the Muslim diaspora, is taught a very nostalgic and very limited view of Islamic civilization that doesn't take into account all of the diversity of the various lands that were um, predominantly Muslim, and how the culture and the traditions of a particular location informed how Islam was practiced, such that not all of Islam was practiced, not all Muslims practiced Islam exactly the same way. You just look at Shia Sunni, you look at the four schools of thought, right, within Sunnism, 
and then there's multiple sects of Shiism, and a lot of that is right arises out of different local conditions. So one of the and this is somewhat this is diasporan propaganda. Is what does diaspora mean? Because you use that a lot in your 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 some of your writing, and I've heard you say it quite a bit. What what is diaspora? Are people who uh, immigrated or their their parents or grandparents or great grandparents immigrated to a different land, and they are now part of that. They still have a connection back to the homeland or an identity, but they are the diaspora. So they are the people who now are somewhere else, physically located somewhere else. But they have a connection, even if it's just an identity connection. So, for example, Indians in Africa, as you know, there's large migrations of people from India who went to Africa, and now there's third, fourth generation. So they could be called the Indian diaspora. Mm, okay. India. But diaspora means you're no longer in that country or you're no longer in those lands, and it could be third, fourth, fifth generation. Anyway, um, so, so part of the propaganda, I think, uh, for to keep Muslims, well, a lot of parents, Muslim parents, want their kids to not leave the faith, and they want their kids to um, not be ashamed of their faith, and they know that it's hard to be a minority. And they also know that their faith is vilified a lot in the media. And so then they tend to oversimplify history and say, oh, we're all one, we're all the same. Islam is special, Islam is different, it's unique. And it's not that that's false, but it's very simplistic and it doesn't appreciate the richness of Islamic history that ranges all the way from Andalusia and Spain to Morocco, across North Africa, into the Levant, the Persian Gulf, Iran, Central Asia, Indonesia, all of those places are so different. And even though they have the same religion, it's like saying that oh, people who are in Ecuador because they're Catholic have exactly the same way of practicing Catholicism as people in Spain. Yes, it's the same religion, but I'm sure it's very different because the culture impacts it. And, and that particular local region impacts it and, and the history. And so, and I think that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but we tend to be taught this very uh, homogenized narrative that's false. And if you take classes in Middle East studies and Islamic civilization, it'll open your eyes to realize, wow, this is a really rich and deep and complex and varied. That's the, that's the important word, varied, different histories. And part of the propaganda of Saudi Arabia since the 1950s has been to try to persuade Muslims across the world that they're the representatives of Islam. Their interpretation of Islam is the only and right version because they are the protectors of Mecca and Medina. And that's false. Before the 1920s, the Persian Gulf was a bunch of tribes that were Bedouin that were living day to day. Before they discovered oil, the Persian Gulf politically was irrelevant, right? The centers of power, the centers of civilization, the centers of intellectualism were in Baghdad, Cairo, Damascus. So there's a lot of misinformation even within uh, Muslim communities, especially diaspora communities, because you don't have the access to the education to be able to check those, um, those narratives, right? You're, it's not as if you get a class in high school and in college that can then teach you a more enriched and complex version of history. 
you were raised in this country, right? You were telling me about that. So how how was that like growing up as you call it diaspora? It's a difficult difficult word, but how 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 was it growing up in this country? What was your experience like as a Muslim woman? Well, I think it depends on where you live. I was raised a large part of my life in Texas, so many people thought I was Hispanic or they thought I was biracial, mixed black and white, because I have very curly hair, which is very typical North African hair. I'm originally, I was born in Cairo, and so I, my experience is I was raised as Latina. Sometimes races as black because the white, the, because of the one drop rule in America, that if you have one drop of black blood in you, you're black. So people who thought I was biracial, that automatically means you're black, at least in my day. Now I think biracial is recognized as a unique category. Um, so most people before 9-11, I was very invisible in terms of my real identity. People just didn't know what Arabs were, or if they did, they didn't envision them someone who doesn't have an American who has an American accent, doesn't have a foreign accent, or somebody who's westernized in how she dresses and how she behaves because I was raised here. So an Arab was somebody who was very foreign acting, foreign speaking, foreign looking. And because there were very few Arabs, uh, at least in my immediate environment, and there were a lot of Mexican Americans, then my experience was that. Now after 9-11 though, uh, I definitely noticed a heightened sensitivity to my identity. And definitely notice more microaggressions and people looking at you funny, people feeling anxiety, asking you questions that clearly showed that they held some stereotypes. Some of them were male well-meaning, but still it was insulting. And some of them were just outright racist. Uh, but it, you know, the experience of Arab Americans is 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 complicated because we're our status, our legal status is white. And before 9-11, depending on what you looked like, you could pass as white or you could pass as some other non-white minority, but nobody really knew what Arabs were. And then after 9-11, we got outed, right? Muslims, Arabs, all the same, Pakistani, Afghani, nobody knew the difference. But what was clear is that you weren't white and you weren't, and you were suspicious and you were foreign and you were different and you were an other. So, that, so I certainly uh, experienced that, but I had a lot of privileges because I was in certain environments where it was not considered polite to at least express your explicit biases. So that protected me a little bit. Um, and I didn't have to, and I also was a lawyer. So if the government was gonna mess with me, they were gonna know that I would know how to protect myself. I wasn't a member of a, uh, from a class perspective, I wasn't as vulnerable. I was also a citizen, so I didn't have to worry about possibly being deported because if you were an immigrant or a non-immigrant Muslim, you were much more vulnerable to government um, aggression and government abuse. Uh, and also I was lucky that I wasn't young in terms of after 9-11, I was already in law school and a professional, but I know that those maybe in your generation when they were 10 and 11 and 12, and they're coming of age after 9-11, I think they're, I, I'm sure that they experienced a lot more bullying that was related specifically to their Muslim identity rather than perhaps just being brown, right? Being a minority and not being a majority. Um, and I think it was also a lot harder for Muslims who wanted to quote unquote, assimilate and pass. That choice wasn't there anymore, right? I never chose that. I never tried to pass as white and didn't want to pass as white. I know a lot of Arabs that did, and it didn't work after 9-11. And so that really racialized them and it opened their eyes 
to all of the privileges they didn't have. Because when you experience discrimination, when you experience subordination, and when you see the privileges you don't have vis-a-vis -vis others who have those privileges, you see America in a whole new light. And you start realizing that all of these rights that we have on law and the constitutional rights and the statutory rights, they're just on paper, but they're not always enforced in real life. What about in your within your own personal thoughts and your own personal uh, life when it came to your religion? How, how did you deal with that? Was that was there any point where you're like, oh, I'm tired of this whole Muslim thing? It's difficult being Muslim in America. I would rather just assimilate, as you called it. No, no, that was never the path that I chose. Um, Why is that? Had, well, I mean, I just had a very strong Muslim upbringing, and I was very proud of my identity. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with a person's personality traits. Uh, and also there was a, a relatively decent Muslim community. So I think people who are attached to the mosque, they find a sense of belonging or they have an in-group. I think we all need to belong to some in-group. And if that in-group doesn't accept you, you're more likely to try to shed those characteristics so you can belong uh, and not be alone. But if you have places that will accept you with all of your identities, whether they're Muslims or non-Muslims, I also had a lot of friends who were very diverse themselves. And so they weren't very judgmental about um, difference. I, I didn't have friends who were all white and only accepted you if you were white and Christian and they were all homogeneous. Um, but I also was raised in an urban area. So I didn't have, I had choices of who my friends could be. And it was no coincidence that my friends also were immigrants, my friends also were diverse, because that made them more accepting of me and I was more accepting of them. How about within the, your, your own Muslim community, since you are, are a non-hijabi, did you, did you find yourself dealing with any uh, discrimination or, you know, microaggressions because you're not wearing a hijab? Well, there's certainly, yes. So the, there is patriarchy is alive and thriving in, in traditional Muslim communities, as it is in Christian and Jewish and secular liberal <laughs> communities. I deal with patriarchy at work all the time. Um, but it's much more explicit. And in terms of, and it was really generational. I have noticed a big change. So my generation, now that we're of age and we're the leaders, I don't see it as much because the, the males who are my age who were raised here have been socialized to work with women and to, to be able to, in a custom for women to be leaders and women to be smart and accomplished and, and in leadership positions. Whereas when I was growing up, the mosque board and the mosque leadership were mainly men and they were immigrant men and they were not socialized for women to be in positions that other than wives and sisters and volunteers uh, and not on the board. But as the demographic changed, then that organically started to change. So what we're seeing is we still have these very traditional mosques, but we are also seeing mosques that are now being run and managed by American raised, if not American born Muslims. And that changes everything because the mosque is a product of the leadership and the congregants. And so the, the farther in time you go, so closer to 1965, the more the Muslims that were immigrants were literally fresh off the boat, right? 
the farther you go in time, the Muslims now, even if they're children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants, they're now American born and raised. And so they're going to bring different, they're socialized differently. But I just wanna be very clear. Patriarchy is a universal disease. There is no society and no man and no family and no institution that is free of patriarchy. Patriarchy is alive and well and thriving. It just takes different forms and it has different degrees, but it is not, no, there's no monopoly over patriarchy. It, it, it's, yeah, I can tell you that as somebody who's been in both Western and, and Middle Eastern and Muslim and non-Muslim environments. Um, and again, all you have to do is look at the 80 cents on the dollar. All you have to do is look at how few women are in elected office, okay? how few women are CEOs, how few women are partners in law firms, how few women are judges. We can, the list goes on and on in a liberal, secular, Western society. That is a product of patriarchy. So uh, based off your experience growing up in the United States as, as a Muslim woman, what, what advice would you give Muslim women or Muslims in general that are growing up here who are struggling uh, with their identity, with their religion, uh, and embarrassed uh, most of the time of who they are? Well, first, I will tell you that it's not unusual to feel that way. I think anytime you're not a member of the majority, you're going to have identity issues, and you have to figure out who your authentic self is. And I just advise you not to follow the path of shame or the path of embarrassment or the path of compromise in a way that doesn't, that isn't true to yourself. And what you should do instead is really be selective about the people that you let into your life and pick them based on people, based pick people that accept you for who you are. Because anybody who doesn't accept you for who you are with your religious identity, your ethnic identity, your, you know, all of the various aspects of who you are is probably not a very good friend and probably not really worth your time. And so the challenge is just finding those people that will accept you for who you are. The, the second is um, do your own research, discover who you are. Your parents raised you a certain way, that's going to influence you, but they, you can be, you can read and you can do your own research and you can investigate. And just because your parents tell you this is how Islam is practiced, doesn't mean it's the only way Islam is practiced. Why don't you go figure out? Because I'm sure you will find that there are many different ways Islam is practiced and that there's nothing wrong with having differences of opinion and still being Muslims and still not necessarily being enemies. But, but I, I think the worst case scenario is when you're ashamed of who you are and when you let other people tell you who you should be and let other people tell you how to interpret your own faith and what faith you should have. I think you should do your own research and I think you should be proud of who you are uh, and, and engage in that self-exploration and eventually the truth will come out. Hmm, beautiful. Professor Sahaziz, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up from here. Bye guys, have a good one. Are you, by the way, are you standing? Yes. What? That is insane. <laughs>